As far as any particular food, there was nothing that I really missed during the year. What I missed was just convenience. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we're kicking off Season 5 and introducing an occasional series about how we can eat more sustainably. We're calling it Conscious Cuisine. First up, sustainability activist Rob Greenfield shares lessons learned from his year of growing and foraging all of his own food and takeaways for the rest of us. Thank you for eating up the latest episode of The Zest. WUSF Public Media also offers a delicious podcast focused on arts and culture in the Sunshine State. The Arts Access Florida podcast highlights arts and cultural organizations right here in Florida. Learn more about these unique institutions, how you can be a part of upcoming events, and so much more. For a culturally enriching experience, subscribe to the Arts Access Florida podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit artsaccessflorida.org. That's arts, A-X-I-S-F-L dot org. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Community Foundation Tampa Bay. For many of us, eating sustainably means remembering to bring our reusable bags to the grocery store. But Rob Greenfield wanted to go further, much further. The sustainability, equity, and justice activist has garnered a huge social media following with self-imposed challenges to raise awareness. A while back, he simplified his life down to just 44 possessions. Then there's the time he rode his bike across the U.S. while bathing only in natural water sources like lakes and rivers. But in 2019, Rob embarked on what might be considered his most extreme feat yet, an entire year of growing and foraging all of his food in Orlando. No grocery stores, no restaurants, no takeout, not so much as a morsel of food cooked by friends. He says his weight didn't change and he stayed in good health. I caught up with Rob in Gulfport, just south of St. Petersburg, where he was staying with a friend. We chatted in the backyard over glasses of homemade kombucha. In this conversation, Rob shares how the year-long experiment impacted his social life, the kitchen appliance he swears by, and advice for how we can all eat a bit more sustainably. I started by asking Rob why he decided to give up grocery stores and restaurants for an entire year. I guess that kind of dates back to about 10 years ago. I was living a pretty typical average American lifestyle, didn't pay attention to where my food comes from, didn't grow any of my food, didn't forage any of my food. It came from, you know, packages at the store that I put in plastic bags and took home. And in 2011, I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and realized that the food that I was consuming was consuming the planet. That if every bite of food I was taking, I was causing destruction to people, to our fellow plant and animal relatives and the earth as a whole. And so I decided I wanted to change that. Not just food, everything that I was doing. And that set me off on a journey of finding truth, finding truth in my food, finding truth in, in everything. And it wasn't until six years later of slowly changing my diet, starting to shop at farmer's markets, starting to grow a little bit of food, starting to forage a little bit. And 
many other changes that I eventually decided to embark on this project to see if I could just be done with grocery stores and restaurants completely and grow and forage every bite of food I took for a year. Oh my gosh. So in 2019 is when you actually embarked on this journey. Where were you living before and why did you choose to relocate to Orlando for this project? I was living in Orla- oh, sorry, in San Diego, California for five years from 2011 to 2016. And I grew a little bit of food there. I lived in an off-the-grid tiny house in the city, uh, living on rainwater. And so I had started to immerse in living sort of sustainability to the to the extreme, you know, not just using reusable bags, but actually trying <laughs> That's to, me. <laughs> yeah, actually trying to exist in a way that truly walks lightly on the earth. And I then traveled for two years and I as I was traveling, was kind of checking places out for the potential of the next place to live. And I traveled through Orlando in 2016. It was just so welcomed by the community there. And there's a huge community of permaculturists. There's a group called Orlando Permaculture, which is hundreds of people that grow food in their backyards, in their front yards, that meet monthly to get together and talk about plants. And I felt both uh, embraced by the community and I felt the love, but it I also felt the support. I need. I was a complete beginner, a complete rookie, and I needed to be where both there was the knowledge and there was the resources. And I found that of all places in Orlando, Florida. I love that. Plus decent weather for growing food most yes. of the year. Okay, so just real quick, run through where you lived, what you grew, what sort of rules you set for yourself. Yeah, so I built a tiny house in a in a backyard of someone that I met, someone that had been following me for a handful of years. I met her at the Florida Herbal Conference and we got to talking. I actually went to her, her house just to see about helping her grow some food and I ended up building a tiny house in her backyard. The idea was that in exchange for me setting up my tiny house there, I'd help her to live sustainably, to help her achieve her dream of living a more sustainable life. So that was the arrangement that we made. I was just about two miles from downtown Orlando. So I was, you know, in the city. And I I set about, because I didn't own any land, and I had very little money, and I had very little experience. So I was starting from scratch. And what I did is I talked to people in the neighborhood, and I asked if they'd like their front yard turned into a garden. And that's what I did. That's where I grew all my food was in people's yards, and I shared the food with them. Okay, so I read that you grew more than 100 foods. What were some of your favorites? Yeah, I grew 100 different foods in my garden and foraged 200 different foods from nature. In my garden, banana, papaya, moringa, katuk, chaya, perennial spinaches. You know, a lot of these uh, perennial plants that a lot of people have never heard of before but also just, you know, your standard, like carrots and sweet potatoes and Swiss chard and beets and garlic. Um, so I had to figure out how to grow everything or forage it because there was literally no exceptions. For the entire year, every single bite, every nutrient, calories, protein, fat, vitamins. I no no pharmaceuticals, no vitamin pills. Uh, literally everything that I put in my mouth, I had to grow or forage, except my toothpaste, but I didn't swallow that. 
That is wild because even when you watch these recipe shows or these blogs that are like, you know, five ingredients or fewer, they always say like, oh, salt, pepper, and olive oil. Those don't count. count. So how did you flavor the food? Absolutely. It all counts. That's what if, you know, with my life, with this project and all of my projects, it's that I pay attention to all the details. And one of the reasons that's so important is because we are a society today that likes to forget about all these important details But these important details are what create our existence. They are what make ecosystems function. They are what creates the biodiversity of our fellow plant and animal species. If we forget these details, ultimately in time, we will no longer be able to exist as human beings because we leave this place as a wasteland. But on a less serious note, how did I uh, flavor my foods? Um, Nature is abundant in flavors. One element of that is readjusting your palate. When you grow up and you live on a factory farmed food system, ultimately you have a factory farmed palate and you need these extreme flavor bursts of the right mixture of the fats and the salts. And believe me, I still could get that through nature, but it changes your your palate starts to become naturalized. So I grew, you know, dozens of different herbs. I've foraged my salt from the ocean. Um, and I <laughs> you say that so casually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is casual because, and this was one of the big things for me. I was like, well, where am I going to get my salt? I had heard about Gandhi's salt march to the ocean where they ma- marched to the ocean and picked up salt. So I knew about that. I'd been the salt to the uh, salt flats of Oyuni in Bolivia. So I knew you could get harvest salt there, but Florida didn't have any salt flats. You couldn't pick up salt anywhere. So I was like, how is this going to work? And this was a problem because my girlfriend at the time was a salt addict. (laughs) And I was like, if I can't get the salt situation down, she's not going to stay with me. This relationship is over. (laughs) So fortunately, all you have to do is go to the ocean, pick a cleaner part of the ocean, fill up a pot, take that pot home boil the water, the water boils off, and you're left with salt. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Yeah, that's simple. (laughs) I I hate this question because I'm a vegetarian and people always ask me, Mm. where do you get your protein? But where did you get your protein? Oh, yeah. Numerous places. Fish was one of my main sources of protein and specifically mullet, which is an important staple food of the state of Florida and the east coast of the United States. A lot of people disregard it. They think it's mushy and soft unless you smoke it. But I, I, you know, I cast netted mullet and it was an incredible fish. And one of the important things is that when eating fish, it's important to eat low on the food chain, not swordfish and shark and things like that. But fish that are low on the food chain are much more sustainable. So that was one area. And then another big area was deer that were hit by car. And that was my first time doing that. <laughs> Let's just pause and let that sink in. So it, it is venison. People, I'm yeah. from Ohio. People go out and hunt deer and pack their freezer with it. How does one, what do you do? Just just drive around and look for a dead animal? And then how do you even pick it up? I yeah. mean, talk to me. Logis- I'm never going to do this, by the way, but just yeah. talk to me about the logistics. Well, if you hang out with me enough, you might end that's up being true. a deer that's <laughs> in my car. A lot of people do. I can't tell you how many people I have shared deer with that I that I harvested. So I have to say, I was intimidated by it because I was vegan from 2014 to 2016, and I had been leaning towards veganism for the years before that. I had never worked with a large animal. I grew up fishing, but the idea of butchering a a deer, an animal like my size, it was intimidating. But what I realized is, is 
it's nowhere near as complicated as as you would think. It's actually extremely simple. And as far as how I went about getting them, well, rather than driving around looking for them, instead, I just talked to people that drive around and I just said, hey, if you see one, send me a text or call me and I'll go pick it up. Got a hot tip on a, a dead animal in the road. <laughs> so how do you even pick it up? Well, what I would do rather than having to take the whole animal home. Ideally, it was in a place where I could just drag it into the woods right there and I would just harvest the meat off of it, you know, 20, 25 pounds of meat. And then I could just take that and then leave the animal there, what I wasn't harvesting to be eaten by coyotes and animals and just return to the earth. And one thing I just want to mention is, you know, a lot of people call it roadkill. But the reason that I stray away from that term is because it's first and foremost still a deer. You know, if we as a human being are hit by a car, we're not roadkill. We're a human being that was hit by a car. We're first and foremost a human being. And people see an animal that's been killed in that way as an other. But it's still a deer. And you just have to use some basic common sense principles to be able to tell, is it recently hit and still something that can be harvested? Or is it old? And there's some, you know, pretty pretty basic things you can do to learn that. Okay, let's talk about foraging. We're in your friend's yard here in Gulfport, just south of St. Pete. Beautiful, looks like a just the Garden of Eden. And you were so kind to walk me around and give me a tour. And, and you were showing me just grab a handful of this. Okay, don't grab that one because you got to cook it down or it's got cyanide. So if I want to adopt some of these practices in terms of like foraging for my food, what are some guidelines so that I don't so I don't die. <laughs> yeah. Well, so many people are incredibly intimidated by by growing food, by foraging, and I think one of the reasons why is that's intentional. We have been intentionally intimidated away from having this connection with our food so that we're dependent upon corporations that we will buy our food from. But the truth is is that this is what humans have been doing for 99.9% of the human experience. It's still in our blood to be able to harvest food that comes from the land. We have relationships with these plants. So the number one rule to foraging in order to not die, and as long as you just follow this one simple rule, you will never die from foraging. We're all going to die at some point, is just only eat something if you're completely sure of what it is. Well, then I probably won't eat anything. So then the key is learning one thing at a time. Rather than be like intimidated by, wow, there's all these plants around, how am I ever going to do with this? You start with one plant. So everyone's probably heard of dandelions, for yes. example. Mm -hmm. You learn a dandelion, you eat that dandelion, you start to, everywhere you go, watch for that dandelion. You create a relationship with that dandelion, and soon enough, you know a dandelion as well as you know a banana or an apple from the store. You start with one plant at a time. If you just learn and eat one new plant a month for a year, that's 12 plants that you now can forage that come from the earth. And if you take it a step further and you really want to get into it, if you just dedicate some of your time, even just a couple hours a week to learning one new plant a week, at the end of the year, you can be foraging 52 plants. Imagine being able to walk around and identify and eat 52 plants. It's very manageable. And one of my biggest recommendations is start with the easiest, simplest to identify and incorporate foods, greens being one of them, 
and then don't go with the complicated stuff until you are, you know, more comfortable and knowledgeable. Okay, that's fair. Every day when I walk the dog, I see beauty berries. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can eat these. Yes. But I haven't actually done it. So beauty berries are a great place to start for Floridians. They are a pinkish purplish berry that grows. It's often grown as a landscaping, you know, decorative plant. They're native to Florida. And those berries, although not very flavorful, are edible. And once you learn a beauty berry, they're pretty obvious. So I would say definitely start with beautyberry. It's an easy place. Now, just keeping in mind that it's not going to be like wowing you with its flavor. But whenever you see a bright color like that, if it's not poisonous, it means it's got some really good nutrients in it. Of course, now poisonous plants, toxic plants also have really great nutrients in them but they also have things that your body can't handle. <laughs> okay, this is getting a little stressful, um, but I'll work it out. I'll start with the beauty berries because you said I could. I know you, you raised bees so that you could satisfy your sweet tooth, but was there anything you couldn't get your hands on that you were just craving? Well, I couldn't get my hands on chocolate. Oh. Um, chocolate does not grow in Central Florida. Um, cacao, I've heard of people growing it a little bit, I think, in South Florida, but you can't forage it. It's only farmed. Amazingly, as far as any particular food, there was nothing that I really missed during the year. What I missed was just convenience. I mean, I had to every time turn down the temptation just to stop into a restaurant or stop into a store and get something. Being at my friend's potlucks or dinners, like I had to bring my own food over there and resist that temptation. And you know, that it's the end of the day, I've gotten home from a long day out, it's 10 o'clock, and I don't have anything, like, prepared, so I gotta start a meal from scratch. <laughs> you gotta go out in the backyard and start grabbing some leaves. Yeah, <laughs> and you get much more efficient at that, but that's what I missed, was just convenience. It was tiring. Now, with that being said, keep in mind that I went from growing 0% of my food to 100% in 10 months, as a rookie who didn't know what I was doing. So if I continued it for a few more years, I would have gotten systems down that made it a lot easier. And more importantly, it's about doing it in community. Like me doing this project by myself was partly because there was no one else that I found that wanted to do that with me. It's kind of an intense experience. The idea wasn't that each of us needs to grow and forage our food because it's community. There's no need for me to grow uh, have chickens if my next door neighbor has chickens and they have plenty of eggs and I can share my papayas with them. So it's really the idea of this isn't about having to do it all on your own. It's exhausting and not manageable to do it all on your own for most of us. It's really about coming together as a community. Okay. I wanted to, I definitely want to ask you about some, some takeaways. Just another sort of logistical question. Everybody's telling me I need an Instant Pot and I need an air fryer and mm. I need all these things. And I'm guessing you didn't have any of that because I read that you only have, what, 100 possessions or something crazy like that. So what would you say are the essentials in the kitchen? Yeah. So before that year started, I did just have 111 possessions, but I definitely needed more to do this. You know, you need shovels and you need rakes and you need more things for the kit. You know, just the number of jars. I had a couple hundred jars to store my food, for example. But yes, I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of people, I mean, we live in a consumeristic culture where people always think the answer is that you need more stuff in order to accomplish the task. 
But the reality is, is that food grows freely and abundantly from the earth, and we can simply eat that food from the earth. We don't need a lot. That being said, I actually did get an instant pot. You did? Yes. Oh, now you're one of those. (laughs) I have to say, like, I avoid as much technology in my life as I can, but that thing... Wow, I could just put the food. This sounds like a commercial. I'm not in, I'm not endorsing this. It's but truly it was so when I got that, I could just put the food in the pot, go back to my garden for an hour and a half, come back and have the meal ready to go. And even more so, as I was traveling the country, I put my food into the pot and then when I got to someone's house, I just plugged that thing in. I actually took an Amtrak train from Chicago back to Orlando and I had the Instant Pot with me and I plugged it in on the Amtrak and had hot breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the train. Oh, you're really selling it. We're recording this on New Year's (laughs) Eve and last night I soaked my black eyed peas and then this morning before I drove over here, I put them in the slow cooker. So that they'll be ready, you know, eight hours from now. That's a good way to go. But if I had an Instant Pot... Yeah, so... but <laughs> We need to get them to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I will say, when, when it comes to living self-sufficiently and community-sufficiently, tools are extremely helpful. And so my recommendation is truly use the tools that don't add clutter to your life, but truly add value to your life. And if you go for this, like, mindset of needing every single gadget, ultimately that takes away from your ability. So it's about being very mindful with which tools are really going to allow me to grow more food and forage more and step away from the global industrial food system. And for me, like it was begrudgingly that I used that item. (laughs) But other things would include, you know, I like canning, pressure canning, which is a very simple thing that you just put on your stovetop, lots of jars for storing food. For me, a deep chest freezer was key because you can store so much food so easily. A dehydrator, being able to dehydrate your bananas and your mangoes, and um, that's how I made my vitamin mixes. I just dehydrate lots of greens, blend them up, and then I have my own vitamin mix. So those would be some of the items that were really helpful. Okay. What's the first thing you ate at the end of the year? Yeah, that question back in the day would have provided quite a bit of anxiety to me when people kept asking, what's the first thing you're going to eat? Because it it made me think like, yeah, what am I going to (laughs) do? But um, now that anxiety is gone, which is nice. Um, The first thing I had was my friend Pete Canaris, who he's got a great YouTube channel for learning to grow food. He's located here. His channel's Green Dreams Florida. He brought me a coconut that he had foraged. Oh my gosh. You didn't like get a Snickers bar or something? (laughs) No, but that night we had a community potluck um, at a market in Orlando called East End Market. And I managed to not like overly gorge, but that was the the potluck. That was nice. You know, that's community food. Potlucks are one of my absolute favorite things. Yeah, because there's a social aspect to eating. And if you're the guy off in the corner with your own salad, that probably limited your social life too. It did. I mean, there were a lot of times where I was up until two in the morning processing food when my (laughs) friends were at some kind of fun party and I wanted to go to it, but I had to process these mangoes. They needed to get processed, otherwise they'd go to waste. So it was a struggle. But that being said, you know, one of the most important lessons that I've learned in the last 10 years of living outside the box is to drop social norms, to drop social stigmas, to just stop worrying what people think about you. Because the liberation that I found, that I you know achieved by dropping that, was the equivalent of 
you know, we're talking about hundreds of hours per year of my life that was now freed up for doing what I loved rather than designing myself based on what other people are, are going to think. And because of that, you know, for me, it was rarely ever a big deal for me to just bring my food to the party that I was at and still fully socialize and still be a fully functioning person. But yes, of course, food is the center of our social lives, and that was definitely a, a challenging thing. Are there any aspects of this year-long project that you've continued or that you think the rest of us could adopt? Because it would be easy for me to go, well, he doesn't have anyone he lives with. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have roommates. He can just do whatever he wants. My kids freak out if I buy a different brand of yogurt. Mm. So what are some takeaways for the rest of us? Well, for me, you know, the thing that really I took away from the years, I don't I don't grow and forage all my food today. And I, I've been traveling a lot for the last two years since I finished. So I haven't been able to have a garden. But everywhere I go, I have a relationship with the plants around me and I eat food from the land most days, whether it's dandelions or, you know, plantago or whether it's apples when I'm up north. Everywhere I go, I have a relationship with plants and, you know, they're part of my diet, but they're not just part of my diet. They're part of my happiness and health. The other thing is growing some food. You don't have to grow a huge garden to get the incredible benefits of seeing plants grow from either seeds or little seedlings to something that's on your dinner plate. It, it truly for I see growing food as a gateway that can transform your entire way of interacting with and, and viewing this earth. So even if that's just an herb garden on your, your windowsill or your balcony, I absolutely recommend growing a little food. Other things, supporting local farmers and gardeners, going to the farmer's market and knowing where your food comes from. Joining a community garden is a really good way to be able to have a support network. And I think one thing I'll mention you know, specifically for people in Florida is I do have a guide to living sustainably and to growing food and foraging in Florida, and that's just at robgreenfield.org slash grow. All free information and everything that you could need to know is there or linked there to be able to find out everything you need to know in order to try to do this. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess I would just say... Don't be too hard on yourself. A lot of people could feel overwhelmed after this conversation, this idea of doing it all. But you have to start with where you are. So you can't be me tomorrow. I wasn't me tomorrow. This is 10 years of transformation to go from the drunk college student of blind consumerism to today having a relationship with the earth around me. That's 10 years of work. So you have to embrace you are you. You can only be you. You're in the place that you are now and you can only be there at this moment and you're in the time that you're in so embrace that and then start from there you can't start from anywhere else except where you are right now and just start with one thing at a time whether that's growing a new plant or foraging a new plant or creating less garbage by using reusable towels rather than disposable paper towels or riding your bike a little bit more Start with those things that are going to excite you, that are going to give you that positive motivation and, you know, go one positive change at a time until you get to that dream sustainable life maybe you're yearning for. Oh, I just love that. It's a new year, so I'm feeling really motivated and optimistic. So, Rob, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was Rob Greenfield. He's working on a book titled Food Freedom, 
a year of growing and foraging 100% of my food and why it matters. You can keep up with Rob on Instagram at Rob J. Greenfield, and you can follow us at The Zest Podcast. Visit our website, by the way, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week, we had help from Chandler Balcom and Mark Hayes. Our new intern is Hannah Abdel Majid. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2022.